Hi gang, Bill Creasy here. I've had a wonderful time recording the last 20 episodes of Scripture Uncovered, and I'm delighted that we've found listeners like you who appreciate what we're doing. The podcast is a great way for me to talk directly to you, my students, and listeners. And I look forward to receiving and answering your questions every week. Like any radio program or podcast, significant time and resources go into making each episode of Scripture Uncovered possible. And we want to make the show better and better every week. We're committed to keeping the podcast free for anyone who wants to listen. But now, we're also offering the opportunity to support the podcast. We've launched a page on Patreon, a service that allows patrons, that would be you, to support creators, that would be us, kind of like a digital age version of old world patronage. What's exciting is that we have all kinds of benefits to offer patrons of Scripture Uncovered from free courses in the online classroom to our upcoming webinars launching this September. So go to patreon.com scripture to find out more. By supporting Logos Bible Study and Scripture Uncovered for as little as $10 or $20 a month, we can continue producing the podcast, making it better and more valuable to our listeners every week. And for your support, you'll have access to a whole range of Logos Bible Study material. So go to Patreon, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N, patreon.com slash scripture. The first 50 supporters of the show will get free access to our first live webinar in September. Okay, now it's time for the show. Let's do it. Welcome to Scripture Uncovered, a podcast on the Bible brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Now, here's your host, Dr. Bill Creasy. Hello, gang. Bill Creasy here with this week's episode of Scripture Uncovered. I just returned home from this Sunday's Mass at Mary's Star of the Sea, our little village church in La Jolla, California. The Old Testament reading today was the very short story of the prophet Elisha, feeding 100 people with 20 barley loads and some grain in the ear. And the Gospel reading was the story of Jesus feeding 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. The parallels got me thinking about what I would call the fabric of Scripture. Now, we all know that the 76 books of the Bible in the Roman Catholic canon of Scripture or the abbreviated 66 books in the Common Canon, recognized by most Protestant denominations, were written over a long period of time, roughly 1500 BC through about AD 100. And they were written by many different authors, passed through the hands of countless editors and redactors, and include many different genres of literature. Mythopoeic literature, historical narrative, poetry, letters, epistles, apocalyptic literature, and so on. Nonetheless, I've always insisted in class that the Bible, as we have it in its final finished form, is a unified literary work, with God as the main character, sin as the conflict, and redemption as the theme. 
I arrived at my thinking after reading the great Canadian literary critic Northrop Fry's The Great Code, originally published in 1981. During the 1970s, Fry was the Norton Professor of Literature at Harvard University. In The Great Code, Professor Fry said, the Christian Bible should not be read as a mere anthology of ancient Near Eastern literature, each book independent of the others or grouped by genre, but it should be read in a linear fashion, straight through as many times as may be necessary to possess it in totality. For at that point, the reader can begin to formulate a conceptual unity corresponding to the imaginative unity of his text. Well, in my graduate school days, Fry's thinking set me on the path that resulted in my teaching the English Bible as literature at UCLA for nearly 30 years, and in my teaching scripture through churches and parishes all throughout Southern California and Arizona, and now globally via the internet on audible.com and in the Logos online classroom. I've been traveling down this path for a long time now, and I think I've learned a lot along the way, or at least I hope I did. Anyhow, our two readings at Mass this morning highlighted for me the tightly woven fabric of Scripture and the fact that every little piece of Scripture is an integral part of the whole. When we study the Psalms together, as we have in class many times, we learn that the primary feature of Hebrew poetry is parallelism. That is, a statement is made in the A line of a verse, and then it's restated in the B line in an amplified fashion, either in kind or in contrast. I call it stepped-up parallelism. Here's an example from Psalm 5 at verse 1, a simple verse. To my words give ear, O Lord, give heed to my groaning. The A unit, to my words give ear, O Lord, a simple statement. And then the B unit, give heed to my groaning, steps up or amplifies the first phrase. To my words is parallel to my groaning. Words are words. Groaning is a specific type of word or expression. Give ear, O Lord, is parallel to give heed. Give ear is simply to listen. Give heed is to pay attention. So here it is again. The A unit, to my words. The B unit, give ear, O Lord. Give heed, the B prime unit, to my groaning, the A prime unit. Connect the two A's and the two B's, and you have an X, or chiasmus, a major feature of Hebrew poetry. Now that is a very simple illustration of stepped-up parallelism at work. As a sidebar, if you'd like to learn more about parallelism and how it works in Hebrew poetry, especially in the Psalms, check out The Psalms, A Journey Through the Poetry of Experience, my brand new 360-page ebook, 
with my written analysis of each of the 150 psalms and an audio commentary on all 150 psalms. Oh man, I put a ton of work into that book. And you can find a link to it on the LogosBibleStudy.com homepage. Anyhow, back to our topic. Parallelism is not limited to single verses in a psalm. We might even view the Old Testament as the first statement in Scripture and the New Testament as the stepped-up statement. The readings at Mass this Sunday make my point. Here's the first reading from 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. A man came from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God 20 barley loaves made from the first fruits and fresh grain in the ear. Elisha said, give it to the people to eat. But his servant objected. How can I set this before a hundred? And Elisha again said, give it to the people to eat. For thus says the Lord, you will eat and have some left over. Well, he set it before them. And when they had eaten, sure enough, they had some left over according to the word of the Lord. Now this story parallels the earlier story of Elijah multiplying a handful of flour and a jar of oil for the widow of Zarephath in 1 Kings 17, thus saving both her and her son during a long drought. Now, jump to our gospel reading for this Sunday, John 6, 1-15. After this, that is, after Jesus learned of the murder of John the Baptist, he went across the Sea of Galilee from the west side to the east side. A large crowd followed him because they saw the signs he was performing on the sick. So Jesus got in the boat with his disciples, sailed across the Sea of Galilee to the other side, the Golanite side. Meanwhile, the crowd walked around the Sea of Galilee, around the north shore, and met him on the other side. Well, Jesus went up on the mountain and there he sat down with his disciples. The Jewish feast of Passover was near. When Jesus raised his eyes and saw that a large crowd was coming to him, he said to Philip, where can we buy enough food for them to eat? Now he said this to test him, we're told, because he himself knew what he was going to do. Well, Philip answered him, oh, Lord, 200 days wages worth of food would not be enough for them to have even a little bit. Now one of his disciples, Andrew, the brother of Simon Peter said to him, well, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish, but what good would that be for so many people? Jesus said, have the people recline. Now there was a great deal of grass in that place. So the men reclined about 5,000 in number. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed them to those who were reclining, and also as much fish as they wanted. When they'd had their fill, he said to his disciples, gather the fragments left over so that nothing will be wasted. So they collected them and filled 12 wicker baskets 
the fragments from the five barley loaves. Now, that's a remarkable story, especially if we read it in light of the Elisha story in 2 Kings. There, Elisha feeds 100 people with 20 barley loaves and a few grains in the ear. Here, Jesus feeds 5,000 people with five barley loaves and two fish. That is significant stepped-up parallelism. And it demonstrates that as Elisha outdoes his predecessor Elijah, so does Jesus outdo both of his predecessors, Elijah and Elisha. Look at another parallel series among Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus. In 1 Kings 17, Elijah raises the widow of Zarephath's son in the very same story as he multiplies the flour and the oil. In 2 Kings 4, Elisha raises the Shunammite son. Both raise young boys from the dead. Then turn over to the Gospels. Jesus raises Jairus's 12-year-old daughter who had just died in Mark 5. He raises the widow of Nain's adult son who had died earlier that day in Luke 7. And finally, Jesus raises Lazarus who's been in the tomb rotting for four days in John 11. Now once again, Elisha outdoes Elijah and so does Jesus outdo them both. That is stepped-up parallelism between the Old and the New Testaments. But let me turn back to the multiplication of the loaves story. Reach way back in Scripture to Exodus, where Moses has led nearly two million Israelites out of slavery in Egypt into the Sinai wilderness on their 40-year journey to the Promised Land. Now, I've spent considerable time in the Egyptian Sinai, and I can tell you it's a pretty barren place. Now, I took desert survival training as a young Marine, learning how to find or make water in the desert and how to survive on snakes and lizards. <laughs> snakes are actually pretty tasty, kind of like chicken. Lizards aren't. But how did two million people survive for 40 years in the Sinai? The story strains credulity. We learn in Exodus 16 that God provides manna, bread from heaven, every day to sustain the people. But they only have enough manna in the morning to sustain them for that day. They can't keep it or it rots. Remember last week's podcast. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to say, give us this day our daily bread. And remember Proverbs? Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and say, ah, who needs God? Or I'll be poor and steal. The Israelites survive on manna, the bread from heaven. It's the first miraculous bread we encounter in Scripture. Then we have the multiplication of bread in the triple Elijah, Elisha, and Jesus stories, 
all leading up to the conclusion of the story in John 6, where Jesus says of the manna in Exodus, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never hunger. Whoever believes in me will never thirst. Your ancestors ate the bread in the desert, but they died. This, pointing to himself, is the bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. And the bread that I give is my flesh for the life of the world. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him on the last day. This is fabulous, my friends. We begin this series of stepped-up parallelism with God providing manna, the bread from heaven, in Exodus, which feeds the Israelites day by day throughout their 40 years in the wilderness. Just enough bread, not too little and not too much. Then we have the two vignettes of Elijah and Elisha multiplying loaves followed in the New Testament by Jesus feeding 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. And finally, Jesus referring back to the manna in Exodus, saying that he is the genuine bread, the authentic bread, that his body and blood is genuine food and genuine drink that offers not just sustenance and spiritual vitality in this life, but food for eternal life. Think of that. God fed two million people in the desert for 40 years, giving them just enough to get by day by day. But Christ feeds us every day at Mass on his body and blood, giving us food for eternal life. As I was sitting in Mass this morning, and we filed up and received communion. I thought, you know, all over the world, countless millions were doing the very same thing. I was astounded at the thought. God doesn't provide just enough. God is overly abundant, providing food for all of us, the body and blood of his Son. Now, do you see the point I'm making here? The fabric of Scripture is intricately woven. It's stunning patterns. It's shades and colors comprising a, a breathtaking unity. If we study Scripture, we learn how to see the patterns, to appreciate the richness of the fabric and the beauty of the message. But it takes study. Study. Remember Paul saying to Timothy in 2 Timothy, Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. I'm reminded of what Sir Simon Rattle, the seasoned conductor of the Berlin Philharmonic, once advised the rising young maestro, Robin Ticciotti, on conducting Mozart's Il Sogno di Scipione. He said, it's not enough to just play the notes for this music to work. 
You have to understand the grammar, the rhetoric, the phrasing, the articulation. Otherwise, this piece is non-existent. And Robin Ticciotti observed in turn, I might read a symphony score for the first time and read it like a novel and get awash with feelings. And then I might look at it going, hmm, so there it goes to the supertonic. He's used that inversion to get there. And there's a three-bar phrase followed by a seven-bar phrase. I might have a month of reading and then gradually I put it all together. Well, as Logos students, my friends, we should approach Scripture in the very same way. Not simply read it and be awash with feelings, but study it. Study it to really understand the depth and the beauty of what it is that we're reading. You're listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. Don't forget, you can now support the show on Patreon. Go to patreon.com scripture to find out more about all the great benefits for supporting Scripture Uncovered. Now, back to the show. Here's Dr. Creasy. Well, welcome back to our question and answer session of Scripture Uncovered. Hey, we have a really great audio question from Tom in Arizona. And let me play it for you right now. My question for Dr. Creasy. Uh, we learn a lot in the Old Testament from the writings of the prophets uh, that the Messiah is coming. And we understand a lot about the Messiah, that he will restore the relationship of the Israelites uh, with God, uh, that he will be Christ, that he will be the anointed one. But my question is, did the prophets or did the Israelites in the time of Jesus had the expectation that the Messiah would truly be God. Did they expect that God made man would be the form that the Messiah presented it? That is a great question, Tom. Who did the disciples think Jesus was? Was he the Messiah? And if so, what was the Messiah to be? Now recall that the word Messiah is Mashiach. It means literally the anointed one. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, after the Israelites are taken captive to Babylon, they were awaiting someone, someone who would come and free them from captivity. Isaiah speaks about it in Isaiah chapter 44 and 45. One will come. Listen to chapter 45 of Isaiah, this is beginning at verse 1. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, Mashiach, to Cyrus. This is Cyrus the Great, king of Persia, who indeed will defeat the Babylonian Empire without firing a shot in 539 and issue the decree that allows the Israelites to go back and rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. This is what the Lord says to his anointed Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so gates will not be shut. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his ways straight. He will rebuild my cities and set my exiles free, but not for a price, 
or reward, says the Almighty Lord Almighty. So here in Isaiah, the Messiah, the Anointed One, God identifies as Cyrus the Great, King of Persia, who will free the Israelites and allow them to go home. Cyrus, the Lord's Anointed. But then we move up into the New Testament, and Jesus steps onto the stage of our story. In Mark, the Gospel according to Mark, the earliest of the four written Gospels, a continual theme in Mark is the identity of Jesus. You know, who is this man who can say and do such things? People keep asking. Now, the funny thing is, the demons know who he is. Why, after Jesus drives out the demon from the man at the synagogue in Capernaum, the demon says, we know who you are, the Holy One of God. So the demons know who he is, but the people don't. And his own disciples keep saying, who is this man who can say and do such things? Finally, Jesus takes his disciples all the way north of the Sea of Galilee, about 60 miles, to Caesarea Philippi, the home of the temple of the god Pan. And we read over in Matthew 16, when Jesus came to the region called Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now they replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But Jesus said to them, what about you? And the you is plural. He's speaking to the group. What about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answers on behalf of the group. You are the Christ, Mashiach, the anointed one, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, that's correct. And you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And we know how the story goes. But then, Six days later, after a six-day journey, we read in chapter 17 of Matthew, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, the brother of James, and led them to a high mountain by themselves. That is the Mount of Transfiguration, Mount Hermon, as I would argue. And there he was transfigured before them. Literally, the Greek word is metamorphosized before them. His face shone like the sun. His clothes became as white as light. And then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Peter's befuddled. Lord, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, I'll put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. While he was speaking, a bright cloud enveloped them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Listen to them. Well, what just happened here? Peter's confession of faith six days earlier at Caesarea Philippi, you are the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of the living God, is now validated by God the Father in the presence of two credible witnesses, Moses and Elijah. This is my son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. Listen to him. But what did that mean? This is my son. Did it mean Jesus is God? Clearly not here at the Mount of Transfiguration. And then 
After the Mount of Transfiguration, they head for Jerusalem and the cross. What did people expect? Well, I think they expected someone like David, a mighty warrior, someone like Cyrus, a great king, who would free the people from the, the oppression of the Roman Empire, who would restore the kingdom of God. That's what they're looking at, I think. But then, when Jesus gets to Jerusalem, what does he do? He attacks the religious leaders, day by day, escalating the encounter. His disciples are, are puzzled. What in the world is he doing? What's he doing? Well, what did they expect? Not what they were seeing, that's for sure. After Jesus' crucifixion, burial, and resurrection, with the resurrection, and 40 days with his disciples, teaching them what they need to know to get the gospel out to the world, then they begin to understand. But the understanding is only in its beginning stages. He ascends into heaven, and the Holy Spirit arrives, guiding the church, the engine of the church, all during the time afterward. The knowledge of the disciples, of the apostles, of who Jesus is, we don't see fully expressed until the Gospel according to John, the last of the four Gospels. Now, John knows that the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, have been circulating in the Christian community. So he's not going to write yet another Gospel, a synoptic Gospel seen with the same eye. John is going to do something very different. And in John's prologue, we finally understand who Jesus is. He begins his Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Word equals God. And the Word became flesh and lived among us, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, but God, the only begotten, who is in the bosom of the Father, has made him known. Now, I've selected verses from the prologue from verse 1 all the way over through verse, uh, verse 18. But let me read it all to you, and you get a full understanding. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things through Him came to be. And without Him, nothing came to be that came into being. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. There came a man, having been sent from God, whose name was John. He came as a witness that he might witness about the light, that, there, that all might believe through him. Now he, John, was not the light, but he came that he might witness about the light. He was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world came to be through him, and the world did not recognize him. He came to his own. They did not receive him. But as many as did receive him, he gave to them the right to become children of God, 
to those believing in his name, the ones born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and lived among us. And we gazed upon his glory. Glory as of an only begotten who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Well, that's who Christ is. And later in John's gospel, Jesus himself will say, Seeing me, you have seen the Father. The Father and I are one. But it took a while to get to that. Early on in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the Synoptic Gospels, the disciples struggle with Jesus' identity. And frankly, I think there's a period during Jesus' life where he struggles to understand his own identity. But by the time we get to John, in the late 80s, early 90s, we've got it locked in. That was a great, great question. Thank you, and we'll see you all next week. You've been listening to Scripture Uncovered, brought to you by Logos Bible Study and LogosBibleStudy.com. To submit your text or audio questions, email us at online at LogosBibleStudy.com. That's online at LogosBibleStudy.com. And check out Scripture Uncovered on Patreon, a great service that allows you to support the show so that we can continue bringing valuable programs to you week by week. There are all kinds of benefits for supporting the show, including free online courses in the Logos Online Classroom. The first 50 supporters will get free access to Dr. Creasy's first live webinar session in September. Go to patreon.com, that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash scripture to learn more. Patreon.com slash scripture. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.